Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But first, let's take some time to relax. Take a nice, big stretch where you are. Really give your body permission to release any tension still lingering from the day. Breathe in through your nose and fill your tummy with a nice, big breath. Now sigh it all out. You have nothing left to do today but get a good night's sleep. Isn't that lovely? In our last episode, we met Jane in her cottage with a swirling snowstorm outside. Just then, she heard a knock on the door, and Mr. Rivers came inside, dripping snow all over her floor. He was silent for a long while, then began to tell a story about a woman named Jane Eyre. He retold Jane's history back to her, and said that a lawyer in London was looking for her. He had seen her real name absent-mindedly doodled on the back of a piece of paper covering the portrait she had done of Rosamond Oliver. He then explained that her uncle in Madeira had died and left her his fortune of £20,000. Overwhelmed, Jane asked why he had been contacted, and St. John told her that his middle initial was E. It stood for heir. His mother and Jane's father were siblings, meaning that St. John, Diana, and Mary were all her cousins. Jane was suddenly overjoyed. She immediately decided to split the inheritance between the four of them, providing she could live with them at Moor House. By Christmas, Jane had closed the school and told St. John she wished to have the help of Hannah to scrub and polish Moor House from top to bottom before Diana and Mary returned home for the festivities. And that is where we pick back up tonight. Jane preparing to see her newfound cousins again for Christmas. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 34 continued. 
He took the schoolroom key from me. You give it up very gleefully, said he. I don't quite understand your light-heartedness, because I cannot tell what employment you propose to yourself as a substitute for the one you are relinquishing. What aim, what purpose, what ambition in life have you now? My first aim will be to clean down to comprehend the full force of the expression, to clean down more house from chamber to cellar, I replied. My next, to rub it up with beeswax oil and an indefinite number of cloths till it glitters again. My third, to arrange every chair, table, bed, carpet, with mathematical precision. Afterwards, I shall go near to ruin you in coals and peat to keep up good fires in every room. And lastly, the two days preceding that on which your sisters are expected will be devoted by Hannah and me to such a beating of eggs, sorting of currants, grating of spices, compounding of Christmas cakes, chopping up of materials for mince pies and solemnizing of other culinary rites as words can convey but an inadequate notion of to the uninitiated like you. My purpose, in short, is to have all things in an absolutely perfect state of readiness for Diana and Mary before next Thursday, and my ambition is to give them a beau ideal of a welcome when they come. St. John smiled slightly. Still, he was dissatisfied. It is all very well for the present, said he, but seriously... I trust that when the first flush of vivacity is over, you will look a little higher than domestic endearments and household joys. The best things the world has, I interrupted. No, Jane, no. This world is not the scene of fruition. Do not attempt to make it so, nor of rest. Do not turn slothful. I mean... On the contrary, to be busy. Jane, I excuse you for the present. Two months' grace I allow you for the full employment of your new position and for pleasing yourself with this late-found charm of relationship. But then, I hope you will begin to look beyond Moore House and Morton and sisterly society and the selfish calm and sensual comfort of civilized affluence. I hope your energies will then once more trouble you with their strength. I looked at him with surprise. St. John, I said, I think you are almost wicked to talk so. I'm disposed to be as content as a queen and you try to stir me up to restlessness. To what end? To the end of turning to profit with talents which God has committed to your keeping, and of which, 
he will surely one day demand a strict account. Jane, I shall watch you closely and anxiously. I warn you of that. And try to restrain the disproportionate fervor with which you throw yourself into commonplace home pleasures. Do not cling so tenaciously to ties of the flesh. Save your constancy and ardor for an adequate cause. Forbear to waste them on trite, transient objects. Do you hear, Jane? Yes, just as if you were speaking Greek. I feel I have adequate cause to be happy, and I will be happy. Goodbye. Happy at Morehouse I was, and hard I worked, and so did Hannah. She was charmed to see how jovial I could be amidst the bustle of a house turned topsy-turvy, how I could brush and dust and clean and cook, and really, after a day or two of confusion worse confounded, it was a delightful by degrees to invoke order from the chaos ourselves had made. I had previously taken a journey to town to purchase some new furniture, my cousins having given me carte blanche to effect what alterations I pleased, and a sum having been set aside for that purpose. The ordinary sitting room and bedrooms I left much as they were, for I knew Diana and Mary would derive more pleasure from seeing again the old homely tables and chairs and beds than from the spectacle of the smartest innovations. Still, some novelty was necessary to give their return the piquancy with which I wished it to be invested. Dark, handsome new carpets and curtains, an arrangement of some carefully selected antique ornaments in porcelain and bronze, new coverings and mirrors, and dressing cases for the toilet tables answered the end. They looked fresh without being glaring. A spare parlor and bedroom I furnished entirely, with old mahogany and crimson upholstery. I laid canvas on the passage and carpets on the stairs. When I was all finished, I thought more house as complete a model of bright, modest snugness within as it was at this season, a specimen of wintry waste and desert dreariness without. The eventful Thursday at length came. They were expected about dark, and ere dusk fires were lit upstairs and below. The kitchen was in perfect trim. Hannah and I were dressed and all was in readiness. St. John arrived first. I had entreated him to keep quite clear of the house till everything was arranged, and indeed, the bare idea of the commotion, at once sordid and trivial, 
going on within its walls sufficed to scare him to estrangement. He found me in the kitchen, watching the progress of certain cakes for tea, then baking. Approaching the hearth, he asked if I was at last satisfied with housemaid's work. I answered by inviting him to accompany me on a general inspection of the result of my labors. With some difficulty, I got him to make a tour of the house. He just looked in at the doors I opened, and when he had wandered upstairs and downstairs, he said I must have gone through a great deal of fatigue and trouble to have effected such considerable changes in so short a time. But not a syllable did he utter indicating pleasure in the improved aspect of his abode. This silence dampened me. I thought perhaps the alterations had disturbed some old associations he valued. I inquired whether this was the case, no doubt in a somewhat crestfallen tone. Not at all, he said. He had on the contrary remarked that I had scrupulously respected every association. He feared indeed I must have bestowed more thought on the matter than it was worth. How many minutes, for instance, had I devoted to studying the arrangement of this very room? By the by, could I tell him where such a book was? I showed him the volume on the shelf. He took it down, and withdrawing to his accustomed window recess, he began to read it. Now, I did not like this, reader. St. John was a good man, but I began to feel he had spoken truth of himself when he said he was hard and cold. The humanities and amenities of life had no attraction for him. Its peaceful enjoyments, no charm. Literally, he lived only to aspire after what was good and great, certainly, but still he would never rest, nor approve of others resting round him. As I looked at his lofty forehead, still and pale as white stone, at his fine lineaments fixed in study, comprehended all at once that he would hardly make a good husband, that it would be a very trying thing to be his wife. I understood, as by inspiration, the nature of his love for Miss Oliver. I agreed with him that it was but a love of the senses. I comprehended how he should despise himself for the feverish influence it exercised over him, how he should wish to stifle and destroy it, how he should mistrust its ever conducting permanently to his happiness or hers. I saw he was of the material from which nature hews her heroes, Christian and pagan, her lawgivers, her statesmen, her conquerors, 
a steadfast bulwark for great interests to rest upon, but at the fireside, too often a cold, cumbrous column, gloomy and out of place. This parlour is not his sphere, I reflected. Well may he eschew the calm of domestic life. It is not his element. There his faculties stagnate. They cannot develop or appear to advantage. It is in scenes of strife and danger where courage is proved and energy exercised and fortitude tasked that he will speak and move the leader and superior. A merry child would have the advantage of him on his hearth. He is right to choose a missionary's career. I see it now. They are coming, called Hannah, throwing open the parlour door. At the same moment, old Carlo barked joyfully. Out I ran. It was now dark, but a rumbling of wheels was audible. Hannah soon had a lantern lit. The vehicle had stopped at the wicket. The driver opened the door. First one well-known form, then another stepped out. In a minute, I had my face under their bonnets, in contrast first with Mary's soft cheek, then with Diana's flowing curls. They laughed, kissed me, then Hannah. They patted Carlo, who was half wild with delight, asked eagerly if all was well, and being assured in the affirmative, hastened into the house. They were stiff with their long and jolting drive from Whitcross and chilled with the frosty night air, but their pleasant countenances expanded to the cheerful firelight. While the driver and Hannah brought in the boxes, they demanded St. John. At this moment, he advanced from the parlour. They both threw their arms round his neck at once. He gave each one quiet kiss and said in a low tone a few words of welcome, stood a while to be talked to, and then, intimating that he supposed they would soon rejoin him in the parlour, withdrew there as to a place of refuge. I had lit their candles to go upstairs, but Diana had first to give hospitable orders respecting the driver. This done, both followed me. They were delighted with the renovation and decorations of their rooms, with the new drapery and fresh carpets and rich tinted china vases. They expressed their gratification ungrudgingly. I had the pleasure of feeling that my arrangements met their wishes exactly and that what I had done added a vivid charm to their joyous return home. Sweet was that evening. My cousin's full exhilaration was so eloquent in narrative and comment. 
that their fluency covered St. John's taciturny. He was sincerely glad to see his sisters, but in their glow of fervor and flow of joy, he could not sympathize. The event of the day, that is, the return of Diana and Mary, pleased him, but the accompaniments of that event, the glad tumult, the garrulous glee of reception irked him. I saw he wished the calmer morrow was come. In the very meridian of the night's enjoyment, about an hour after tea, a rap was heard at the door. Hannah entered with the intimation that a poor lad was come at the unlikely time to fetch Mr. Rivers to see his mother who was drawing away. Where does she live, Hannah? He asked. Clear up at Whitcross Brow, almost four miles off, and the moor and moss all the way. Tell him I will go. I'm sure, sir, you better not. It is the worst road to travel after dark that can be. There's no track at all over the bog. Then it's such a bitter night. The keenest wind you ever felt. You had better send word, sir, that you will be there in the morning. But he was already in the passage, putting on his cloak, and without one objection, one murmur, he departed. It was then nine o'clock. He did not return till midnight. Starved and tired enough he was, but he looked happier than when he set out. He had performed an act of duty, made an exertion, felt his own strength to do and deny, and was on better terms with himself. I'm afraid the whole of the week ensuing tried his patience. It was Christmas week. We took no settled employment, but spent it in a sort of merry domestic dissipation. The air of the moors, the freedom of home, the dawn of prosperity acted on Diana and Mary's spirits like some life-giving elixir. They were happy from morning till noon and from noon till night. They could always talk, and their discourse, witty, pithy, original, had such charms for me that I preferred listening to and sharing in it to doing anything else. St. John did not rebuke our vivacity, but he escaped from it. He was seldom in the house. His parish was large, the population scattered, and he found daily business in visiting the sick and poor in its different districts. One morning at breakfast, Diana, after looking a little pensive for some minutes, asked him if his plans were yet unchanged. Unchanged and unchangeable, was the reply, and he proceeded to inform us that his departure from England was now definitively fixed for the ensuing year. And Rosamond Oliver? suggested Mary, 
the words seeming to escape her lips involuntarily, for no sooner had she uttered them than she made a gesture as if wishing to recall them. St. John had a book in his hand. It was his unsocial custom to read at meals. He closed it and looked up. Rosamond Oliver, said he, is about to be married to Mr. Granby, one of the best connected and most estimable residents, grandson, and heir to Sir Frederick Granby. I had the intelligence from her father yesterday. His sisters looked at each other and at me. We all three looked at him. He was serene as glass. The match must have been got up hastily, said Diana. They cannot have known each other long. But two months. They met in October at the county hall. But there are no obstacles to a union as in the present case where the connection is in every point desirable. Delays are unnecessary. They will be married as soon as the estate, which Sir Frederick gives up to them, can be refitted for their reception. The first time I found St. John alone after this communication, I felt tempted to inquire if the event distressed him, but he seemed so little to need sympathy that so far from venturing to offer him more, I experienced some shame at the recollection of what I had already hazarded. Besides, I was out of practice in talking to him. His reserve was again frozen over, and my frankness was congealed beneath it. He had not kept his promise of treating me like his sisters. He continually made little chilling differences between us, which did not at all tend to the development of cordiality. In short, now that I was acknowledged his kinswoman and lived under the same roof with him, I felt the distance between us to be far greater than when he had known me only as the village schoolmistress, when I remembered how far I had once been admitted to his confidence, I could hardly comprehend his present frigidity. Such being the case, I felt not a little surprised when he raised his head suddenly from the desk over which he was stooping and said, You see, Jane, the battle is fought and the victory won. Startled at being thus addressed, I did not immediately reply. After a moment's hesitation, I answered, But are you sure you are not in the position of those conquerors whose triumphs have cost them too dear? Would not such another ruin you? I think not, and if I were, does not much signify. I shall never be called upon to contend for such another. The event of the conflict is decisive. My way now clear. I thank God for it. So saying, he returned to his papers and his silence. As our mutual happiness 
i.e. Diana's, Mary's, and mine, settled into a quieter character, and we resumed our usual habits and regular studies. St. John stayed more at home. He sat with us in the same room, sometimes for hours together. While Mary drew, Diana pursued a course of encyclopedic reading she had to my awe and amazement, undertaken, and I worked away at German. He pondered a mystic lore of his own, that of some eastern tongue, the acquisition of which he thought necessary to his plans. Thus engaged, he appeared, sitting in his own recess, quiet and absorbed enough, but that blue eye of his had a habit of leaving the outlandish-looking grammar and wandering over, sometimes fixing upon us, his fellow students, with a curious intensity of observation. If caught, it would be instantly withdrawn, yet ever and anon it returned searchingly to our table. I wondered what it meant, wondered too at the punctual satisfaction he never failed to exhibit on an occasion that seemed to me of small moment, namely my weekly visit to Morton School, and still more was I puzzled when, if the day was unfavourable, if there was snow, or rain, or high wind, and his sisters urged me not to go, he would invariably make light of their solicitude and encourage me to accomplish the task without regard to the elements. Jane is not such a weakling as you would make her, he would say. She can bear a mountain blast or a shadow or a few flakes of snow as well as any of us. Her constitution is both sound and elastic, better calculated to endure variations of climate than many more robust. And when I returned, sometimes a good deal tired and not a little weather-beaten, I never dared to complain because I saw that to murmur would be to vex him. On all occasions, Fortitude pleased him. The reverse was a special annoyance. One afternoon, however, I got leave to stay at home because I really had a cold. His sisters were gone to Morton in my stead. I sat reading Schiller, he deciphering his crabbed scrolls. As I exchanged a translation for an exercise, I happened to look his way. There I found myself under the influence of the ever-watchful blue eye. How long had it been searching me through and through, and over and over, I cannot tell. So keen was it, and yet so cold. I felt for the moment superstitious, as if I were sitting in the room with something uncanny. Jane, what are you doing? He asked. Learning German, 
I replied. I want you to give up German and learn Hindustani. You are not in earnest. In such earnest that I must have it so, and I will tell you why. He then went on to explain that Hindustani was the language he was himself at present studying, that as he advanced, he was apt to forget the commencement, that it would assist him greatly to have a pupil with whom he might again and again go over the elements and so fix them thoroughly in his mind that his choice had hovered for some time between me and his sister's that he had fixed on me because he saw I could sit at a task, longest of the three. Would I do him this favor? I should not, perhaps, have to make the sacrifice long, as it wanted now barely three months to his departure. St. John was not a man lightly refused. He felt that every impression made on him, either for pain pleasure was deep, graved, and permanent. I consented. When Diana and Mary returned, the former found her scholar transferred from her to her brother. She laughed, and both she and Mary agreed that St. John should never have persuaded them to such a step. He answered quietly, I know it. I found him a very patient, very forbearing, and yet an exacting master. He expected me to do a great deal, and when I fulfilled his expectations, he, in his own way, fully testified his approbation. By degrees, he acquired a certain influence over me that took away my liberty of mind, His praise and notice were more restraining than his indifference. I could no longer talk or laugh freely when he was by, because a tiresomely importunate instinct reminded me that vivacity, at least in me, was distasteful to him. I was so fully aware that only serious moods and occupations were acceptable, that in his presence every effort to sustain or follow any other became vain. I fell under a freezing spell. When he said go, I went. Come, I came. Do this, I did it. But I did not love my servitude. I wished many a time he had continued to neglect me. One evening, when at bedtime his sisters and I stood round him, bidding him good night, he kissed each of them as was his custom, and, as was equally his custom, he gave me his hand. Diana, who chanced to be in a frolicsome humour, She was not painfully controlled by his will, for hers in another way was as strong, said, St. John, you used to call Jane your third sister, but you don't treat her as such. You should kiss her too. 
she pushed me towards him. I thought Diana very provoking and felt uncomfortably confused. And while I was thus thinking and feeling, St. John bent his head. His Greek face was brought a level with mine. His eyes questioned my eyes piercingly. He kissed me. There are no such things as marble kisses or ice kisses, or I should say my ecclesiastical cousin's salute belonged to one of these classes, but there may be experiment kisses, and his was an experiment kiss. When given, he viewed me to learn the result. It was not striking. I'm sure I did not blush. Perhaps I might have turned a little pale, for I felt as if this kiss were a seal affixed to my fetters. He never omitted the ceremony afterwards, and the gravity and quiescence with which I underwent it seemed to invest it for him with a certain charm. As for me, I daily wished more to please him, but to do so, I felt daily more and more that I must disown half my nature, stifle half my faculties, wrest my tastes from their original bent, force myself to the adoption of pursuits for which I had no natural vocation. He wanted to train me to an elevation I could never reach, racked me hourly to aspire to the standard he uplifted. The thing was as impossible as to mould my irregular features to his correct and classic pattern, to give my changeable green eyes the sea-blue tint and solemn luster of his own. Not his ascendancy alone, however, held me in a thrall at present. Of late, it had been easy enough for me to look sad. A cankering evil sat at my heart and drained my happiness at its source, the evil of suspense. Perhaps you think I had forgotten Mr. Rochester, reader, amidst these changes of place and fortune. Not for a moment, his idea was still with me, because it was not a vapour sunshine could disperse, nor a sand-traced effigy storms could wash away. It was a name, graven on a tablet, fated to last as long as the marble it inscribed. The craving to know what had become of him followed me everywhere. When I was at Morton, I re-entered my cottage every evening to think of that. Now at Moore House, I sought my bedroom each night to brood over it. In the course of my necessary correspondence with Mr. Briggs about the will, I had inquired if he knew anything of Mr. Rochester's present residence and state of health, but as St. John had conjectured, he was quite ignorant of all concerning him. I then wrote to Mrs. Fairfax 
and treating information on the subject. I had calculated with certainty on this step, answering my end. I felt sure it would elicit an early answer. I was astonished when a fortnight passed without reply. But when two months wore away, and day after day the post arrived and brought nothing for me, I fell a prey to the keenest anxiety. I wrote again. There was a chance of my first letter having missed. Renewed hope followed renewed effort. It shone like the former for some weeks. Then, like it, it faded, flickered. Not a line, not a word reached me. When half a year wasted in vain expectancy, my hope died out. And then I felt dark indeed. A fine spring shone round me, which I could not enjoy. Summer approached. Diana tried to cheer me. She said I looked ill and wished to accompany me to the seaside. This St. John opposed. He said I did not want dissipation. I wanted employment. My present life was too purposeless. I required an aim and, I suppose, by way of supplying deficiencies, he prolonged still further my lessons in Hindustani and grew more urgent in requiring their accomplishment. And I, like a fool, never thought of resisting him. I could not resist him. One day, I had come to my studies in lower spirits than usual, The ebb was occasioned by a poignantly felt disappointment. Hannah had told me in the morning there was a letter for me, and when I went down to take it, almost certain that the long-looked-for tidings were vouchsafed me at last, I found only an unimportant note from Mr. Briggs on business. The bitter check had wrung from me some tears, now, as I sat poring over the characters of an Indian scribe, my eyes filled again. St. John called me to his side to read. In attempting to do this, my voice failed me. Words were lost in sobs. He and I were the only occupants of the parlor. Diana was practicing her music in the drawing room. Mary was gardening. It was a very fine May day, clear, sunny, and breezy. My companion expressed no surprise at this emotion, nor did he question me as to its cause. He only said, We will wait a few minutes, Jane, till you are more composed. And while I smothered the paroxysm with all haste, He sat, calm and patient, leaning on his desk and looking like a physician watching with the eye of science an expected and fully understood crisis in a patient's malady. Having stifled my sobs, wiped my eyes and muttered something about not being very well that morning, 
I resumed my task and succeeded in completing it. St. John put away my books and locked his desk, then said, Now, Jane, you shall take a walk, and with me. I will call Diana and Mary, I replied. No, I want only one companion this morning, and that must be you. Put on your things, go out by the kitchen door, take the road towards the head of Marsh Glen, I will join you in a moment. I know no medium. I never in my life have known any medium in my dealings with positive, hard characters, antagonistic to my own, between absolute submission and determined revolt. I have always faithfully observed the one up to the very moment of bursting, sometimes with volcanic vehemence into the other and as neither present circumstances warranted, nor my present mood inclined me to mutiny, I observed careful obedience to St. John's directions, and in ten minutes I was treading the wild track of the glen, side by side with him. The breeze was from the west. It came over the hills, sweet with scents of heat, and rush. The sky was of stainless blue. The stream, descending the ravine, swelled with the past spring rains, poured along plentiful and clear, catching golden gleams from the sun and sapphire tints from the firmament. As we advanced and left the track, we trod a soft turf mossy, fine, and emerald green, minutely enameled with a tiny white flower and spangled with a star-like yellow blossom. The hills, meantime, shut us quite in, for the glen towards its head wound to their very core. Let us rest here, said St. John, as we reached the first stragglers of a battalion of rocks, guarding a sort of pass beyond which the beck rushed down a waterfall, and where, still a little farther, the mountain shook off turf and flower, had only heath for raiment and crag for gem, where it exaggerated the wild to the savage and exchanged the fresh for the frowning, where it guarded the forlorn hope of solitude and a last refuge for silence. I took a seat. St. John stood near me. He looked up the paths and down the hollow. His glance wandered away with the stream and returned to traverse the unclouded heaven which coloured it. He removed his hat. He let the breeze stir his hair and kiss his brow. He seemed in communion with the genius of the haunt. With his eye, he bade farewell to something. And I shall see it again, he said aloud. 
in dreams when I sleep by the Ganges, and again in a more remote hour when another slumber overcomes me on the shore of a darker stream. Strange words of a strange love, an austere patriot's passion for his fatherland. He sat down. For half an hour we never spoke, neither he to me nor I to him. That interval passed, he recommenced. Jane, I go in six weeks. I have taken my berth in an East Indiaman which sails on the 20th of June. God will protect you, for you have undertaken his work, I answered. Yes, said he, there is my glory and joy. I am the servant of an infallible master. I'm not going out under human guidance, subject to the defective laws and erring control of my feeble fellow worms. My king, my lawgiver, my captain is the all-perfect. It seems strange to me that all round me do not burn to enlist under the same banner to join the same enterprise. All have not your powers. It would be folly for the feeble to wish to march with the strong. Do not speak to the feeble or think of them. I dress only such as are worthy of the work and competent to accomplish it. And those are few in number and difficult to discover. You say truly, but when found... It is right to stir them up, to urge and exhort them to be the effort, to show them what their gifts are and why they were given, to speak heaven's message in their ear, to offer them, direct from God, a place in the ranks of his chosen. If they are really qualified for the task, will not their own hearts be the first to inform them of it? I asked felt as if an awful charm was framing round and gathering over me. I trembled to hear some fatal word spoken which would at once declare and rivet the spell. And what does your heart say? demanded St. John. My heart is mute, I answered, struck and thrilled. Then I must speak it continued the deep, relentless voice. Jane, come with me to India. Come as my helpmeet and fellow labourer. The glen and sky spun round. The hills heaved. It was as if I had heard a summons from heaven, as if a visionary messenger like him of Macedonia had announced, come over, and help us. But I was no apostle. I could not behold the herald. I could not receive his call.